Please remain standing for our Old Testament lesson, which is also our sermon text from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, beginning in verse 1. It says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and the way that it reveals you, the way that it reveals your son, Jesus. We pray that as we consider it today, that you would continually conform us into his image. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the sermon text today certainly has a sense of urgency, doesn't it? It's a, it's a call to repentance, a call to come, right there at the end of our reading, but which is actually the very middle of the chapter, is a call to forsake wickedness, to return to the Lord, to repent. So it's appropriate that we're reading uh, this passage in our first Sunday in Lent, which is just the 40 days that lead up to Easter. It's often a time of year that's focused on repentance. Now, Christians should repent, should believe in God every day, not just in Lent, but this is a time where we, we stop and we take stock of our lives. And repentance is not a popular topic. Really, it's, mis, it's a misunderstood topic, especially if you're coming from outside of the church. You might think of, of repentance, of coming to God as giving up everything fun. And many Christians even think of repentance as a kind of a vague sense of guilt that induces you to try harder and do better. But Isaiah says right here that real repentance results in deep satisfaction and delight. And he says that true repentance is total, not just actions, but thoughts, and down to the level of desires, motivations, worship. That's why he's talking in terms of food. He says repentance at its heart is a call to a feast. So it's a call to feast on God himself, and therefore it's a call to fast from everything that we substitute for God. Ultimately, it's a call to rest in God's promises in Christ. That's the headings that we'll take today. Repentance is a call to feast, repentance is a call to fast, and ultimately it's a call to rest in God. First, repentance is a call to feast. Now, I just, as I just said, many people think of repentance as turning back, as coming to God, as something that's sort of a, a sour-faced 
affair. God to them is like uh, the journalist H.L. Mencken described the Puritans. Uh, you know, he said that uh, he has a haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy, right? And God is there to stop it by uh, dropping the hammer and saying, repent, change. But that's not what is described here at all. At the end of verse 2, God says through Isaiah, uh, come, let your soul delight itself in abundance. That word is literally in fatness. It's describing, it's, it's used to describe feasts, an abundant amount of food and good food. It's a table that's piled high and overflowing and good. The call to repentance is a call to come and delight. In verse 1, the food that's offered in this feast is water, wine, and milk. And that points to the all-satisfying nature of the feast that God calls us to. Water is to quench your soul's thirst and to meet the most basic needs for life and refreshment. Milk is for strength and nourishment and health. Babies subsist on a diet of milk, and we give them that so that they will grow big and strong and healthy. And finally, there's wine for joy. Wine is often associated with joy throughout the scriptures. And indeed, the Bible says that God made wine to gladden the heart of man. Proverbs 104.15. Repentance is a call to forsake sin and come back to life. Come back to refreshment. Come back to health and come back to joy in God. Come and delight. Come be satisfied. Finally, in verse 3, God drops the metaphor and says, come to me. You see, we were made to delight and be satisfied in God himself. God is our ultimate source of life and health and joy and satisfaction. We were made, as the Bible tells us, to worship him. Or as the Westminster Shorter Catechism memorably puts it, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The repentance that God calls for and which Isaiah envisions is a wholehearted, whole life obedience that flows from delight. And the offer God gives is free. It's without money, he says, without price. And it's a call to everyone, everyone who thirsts, come. But the image of the feast and the language of delight is the language of experience and appropriation, not mere theorizing. God calls us to a feast, to come and partake, to come to a steak dinner. Okay, nobody uh, assents to the concept of a steak dinner. Or if you do, then you're missing the point of a steak dinner. Rachel and I uh, just got back from a day trip on Friday to St. Louis, and one of the things that we did there was we went out to a nice restaurant, and we got uh, perfect cuts of brisket, all right? And so when the waiter put the meal down in front of me and the meal down in front of her, we did not scratch our chins and say, yes, now I understand. Brisket, it's tender, and I can cut it with just my fork. No, we, you eat it. You delight in it. God is calling you back to himself, not only uh, in a theoretical way to assent to his concepts about God, but to experience the goodness of God in your soul. That's what repentance is like. It's like a steak dinner. We should not think we've returned to God without real instances of encounter, confession, thanksgiving, intercession, or worship and adoration of him. 
That's what repentance is like. So how do I do that? How do I, how do I come to God as this call, this urgent call that he says? God says, incline your ear and come to me. In verse 3, listen carefully and eat. Incline your ear, that's how you come. Listen carefully, that's how you eat. How do you come? How do you eat? Through his word. You listen carefully and you hear his word as you read it or as you listen to it or as you hear it preached. That is where you encounter him. That is where God reveals himself. I've read this... um, I've read a quote, I think twice now in sermons, from a man named George Mueller. He, was, uh, he lived in the 1800s in England. He ran several orphanages, and he led many people to the Lord. Uh, but what George Mueller is, is most known for is his remarkable prayer life, his communion with God. And this is the quote I've read before. He said this, quote, I learned the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord, that I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished, end quote. And so this week, as I was looking for that quote, again, to put it in there because I love it, I, I saw the larger context of the quote, and it's absolutely striking. The larger context is he says this, quote, Before this time, my practice had been, at least for 10 years previously, as a habitual thing to give myself to prayer after having dressed in the morning. Now I saw that the most important thing I had to do was give myself to the reading of the word of God and meditation on it. And thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed. And thus while meditating, my heart might be brought into experimental, that is experiential, communion with the Lord, end quote. It's on meditating on the word of God that he might be brought into experiential communion with the Lord. So the call that God gives us is to come to him, to delight in him, to be satisfied in him, to worship him through his word. And so I want to encourage you all, uh, take, take heed from the prayer life, the remarkable prayer life George Mueller And make the first thing that you do every day to come and delight in the Lord through his word. To see that the Lord is good and to feed upon him. That's what God is calling us to do in this passage. And so first, repentance is a call to return to delight in God himself. But we don't always do that. We don't always delight in God. He's not always our treasure, our satisfaction, right? And so repentance is also a call to fast from God's substitutes. Point one, a call to feast on God. Second point, a call to fast from God's substitutes. If repentance is a returning to delighting and being satisfied in the worship of God, then the essence of sin is to substitute the worship of God with something else. You see that? If, if delighting and worshiping God is what repentance is, then sin is substituting something else for God. In in verse number 2, Isaiah asks, Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages or your labor for what does not satisfy? You see, Israel worked and served and spent in their lives for something other than God, something that would not satisfy them. 
The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1 that the fountain of all sin is idolatry. That is worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Romans 1, 25. And the assumption that Isaiah makes is that you are doing this. Not that one might do this. Notice he does not say, why might one spend their money or their labor for what does not satisfy? He says, no. He says, why do you do this? Why do you spend your money for things that are not bread? Why do you spend your labor on what will not satisfy? Because this is the essence. This is the heart of sin. Of necessity, every human heart serves and seeks satisfaction in something or some things, or some one. What are those things that we might spend our labor, spend our wages on? What might you spend your wages and labor on in this past week? Well, it could be a personal sense of righteousness, right? That I and my actions uh, are just and vindicated. I'm not saying, don't mishear me. I'm not, I'm not against actual righteousness or righteous deeds that are received from God. I mean the sort of self-righteousness that most of us carry around. It could be wealth or possessions or your career. Here we might think of the rich young ruler who came up to Jesus. Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, why do you call, good, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, God alone. Right? Sell everything you have. Right? The rich young ruler is both of those things. Right? He's got a personal sense of righteousness. I've kept all these commandments from my youth. And he's tied to his possessions. Right? And so Jesus puts his finger right on the issues. It could be a certain relationship. I'm going to be happy when all of my friends at school like me or when I get married. It could be and often is just the pleasures of life. Too much food or drink or sex. What Isaiah tells us is that those things will not ultimately satisfy in verse 2. They cannot satisfy. Why? Because what you're doing is you're trying to put a finite thing in the place of the infinite God. Whether that substitute is the right career or uh, pleasure and satisfaction, financial security, the picture-perfect family, or something else, the Bible is clear that we seek our joy and purpose in things that cannot deliver. So are you saying that a, ni a nice family, a, a well-behaved family, or a good reputation, those aren't good? Like, I need to repent of having, you know, obedient children or a good career? No, I'm saying those are, are good things, but I'm saying they're not God. They cannot be the source of your sustenance and satisfaction. Rather, they are good gifts to be used and enjoyed for the purpose which God gave them. But they were never intended to be the aim of your life. When they function as the aim of your life and the source of delight and satisfaction for your soul, it dishonors God and it makes your life unstable. How? How does that work? What do you mean it's, un it's unstable? Well, I'll put it to you this way. Have you ever eaten an entire bag of Reese's Pieces at one go? No, me neither. <laughs> Just kidding, right? But as a thought experiment, as a simple thought experiment, let's imagine that experience for a moment. Every time you eat 
that candy out of the bag. It tastes good. And you feel more full. The thousandth bite isn't as sweet as the first one, but it's still going to be sweet every single time. And when the bag is done, you're going to be full and completely dissatisfied. In fact, you might even be ready for dinner at that point, but you can't eat it because you're so full. If someone put that steak dinner in front of you, if someone put that plate of brisket in front of you, you couldn't eat it because you're too full, and yet you're dissatisfied. Think about being self-righteous. Hmm? Self-righteous gossip or, or whatever it is functions in the same way. It's hard to tell what's going on because the candy is sweet every time. Whenever you replay that event in your mind, you're always right. You're always the victim. When you tell your friend about what happened in the way that you tell it, the other person is always wrong. And it may be that they actually were wrong, that they wronged you and you are a victim. But it never brings that sense of deep satisfaction that you're right with God and with other people because gossip or self-righteousness or outrage cannot provide those things. Those things can only be received by faith from God in Jesus Christ. The extra glass of wine may make you sleep, but it will not give you peace. C.S. Lewis famously said, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. You do this. We all do this. With something or some things, every single one of us which is why repentance must also be a fast. So Puritan um, Thomas Chalmers has a very famous sermon on this concept called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. If you've never read that sermon, you should go read it. It's, it's a wonderful sermon. And in it, he says this, quote, Such is the grasping tendency of the human heart that it must have something to lay hold of and which, if rested away without the substitution of something in its place, would leave to a void and vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system, end quote. Let's go back to our gossip example. If you've ever tried to just stop gossiping, you know that it's really hard to do. But you also recognize that when you do actually pass up on that opportunity to defend yourself or make yourself look better or put someone else down or whatever it is, it's painful, right? When the opportunity's right there and you don't take it, there's something that wells up in you that's painful. You know what that is? It's hunger. It's spiritual hunger for righteousness. Or when you realize that some legitimate good thing like your job or your spouse is not going to satisfy you as you thought it would. And there's that sort of panic, that grasp, that gasp. That's spiritual hunger. And normally we try to put that feeling out of our mind. Or eat another Reese's Pieces and see if maybe this time it'll be satisfying. But that feeling is exactly what you need to be motivated to go to God. Come, Isaiah says, everyone who thirsts, 
those with no money, the poor, the hungry. All of a sudden, we're sounding a lot like the Beatitudes, right? The poor in spirit, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, those who cannot help themselves. Repentance involves sorrow, coming to a place of need and realizing you can do nothing about it. Your thirst tells you that you desperately need and your poverty tells you that you cannot remedy the situation. You need the treasures that someone else can supply. And misunderstanding this this affective, this appetite aspect of repentance is why so many of our attempts at change fail. Right? Because instead, we're dealing with the level of behavior. Okay? So you may recognize that you sin, that you do something wrong, and you say to yourself, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I won't do that next time. But what Isaiah is saying, Isaiah is saying is that wrapped around that sin is a chain of desire and affections. And if you could trace that chain and follow it all the way back, you would find a heart that is looking to something else other than God for satisfaction. And that's the path forward. That's the path to repentance. But often we're just working with uh, willpower or we're working with, with other good, maybe even biblical motivations for repentance, but we're not dealing with the deepest affections. So in other, other ways we might repent ineffectively is um, one of them I'm going to call Jonah repentance, right? That's because of the, the pain of a providence or a circumstance that God brings into your life. God told Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites, and he said, no, I don't want to do that. I don't like those people. And he got on the ship, and God caused a storm, and he made the fish eat Jonah, and he's spending three days and nights in the belly of the fish. And because of that hard providence, that sort of arm-twisting that God does, Jonah repents and says, I will obey you, fine. And he goes and preaches. But if you know the story, you know that Jonah doesn't have a heart level of repentance because at the end of the day, he still doesn't like the Ninevites. He's still hoping that at the end of the day, God will smoke the city and he builds his booth out on the hill to watch and see if the wrath will fall. Repenting because of hard providence in your life is good, and it's fine. It's biblical as far as it goes, but it's only good as far as it goes. We also might repent, just like in the story, like the Ninevites, because of fear of judgment. Right? Jonah preaches his message. Forty days, and yet, yet forty days in Nineveh will be overthrown. And the Ninevites have a great repentance. They all, from the king to the peasants to the cows, they put on sackcloth, they sit in ashes, they wail out, and even says that they turn from some of their wicked deeds. That's good. That's good repentance. But a hundred years later, when the prophet Nahum is preaching, you know what happens? God's judgment falls on Nineveh. It didn't last. Because your repentance, because of the fear of judgment, will only last as long as you fear the judgment. It's good. It's a biblical motivation. It's good as far as it goes, but it only goes so far. You need something stronger to repent at the heart level. And the repentance that God is calling for in this passage is total. Look at verse number 7. It says, Let the wicked forsake his way, that is the actions, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And we've already seen in verses uh, 1 and 2 that it goes all the way to our motivation. So repent of your actions, repent of your thoughts, repent of even for your motivations. How can it be otherwise? Because the heart of repentance is a change of worship. So how are you going to get at that? 
How are you going to follow those desires down to your heart and do that kind of repentance? Well, the first clue is again in verse number 7. It says, Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God. Why? For he will abundantly pardon. You won't have wholehearted, whole life repentance until you're sure that you're going to find mercy and pardon when you get there. You won't come back to God unless you're sure that when you arrive at the doorstep, you're going to find mercy and pardon. And that's exactly what God promises in verse number 7. I don't know if this is how, um, how police work actually works in real life, but every cop show in the world will teach you that the way that you get the criminal to rat out his friends and tell you everything that happened at that crime scene is you slide the piece of paper across the table and you say, if you sign this, nothing will happen to you, right? If you sign this paper, you're free to go. Just tell us everything that happened. Or let's say you come home and you find now that some of the walls in your living room are painted blue and that some of your children are painted blue. Okay, this assumes that you don't have blue walls or blue children um, right now. So if you if you tell them everyone is in big trouble, tell me what happened. What level of confession are you going to get at that point? Right, you're going to get maybe the level of actions and as little as possible. You're going to get something. Yes, father. In fact, I did dip my finger in that paint can before you came home today. All right, what you're not going to get is something like this. Father, I've been contemplating it, and you know what? I just do not respect you or our property in my heart as I ought to. Okay, they're not going to trace it down to the level of the heart because the sentence of judgment is hanging over them. Repentance based on the fear of judgment is good as far as it goes. Repentance based on the pain of hard providence is good as far as it goes. But it only is as far as it goes. We read Luke 15 earlier, the parable of the prodigal son. What, do you remember what got the younger son out of the pig pen and on the road home? Did you remember in the reading? You remember the story. The younger son goes to the father, and he basically tells the father, I wish you were dead. Can I have my inheritance now? And he goes out, and he spends that inheritance on everything he thinks will satisfy his soul. And then he's brought into a kind of forced fast, right? He runs out of money. There's a famine in, in the land. And everything that was satisfying him before, he no longer has access to. And he feels that pain of hunger. And he's in the pig's pen. And he realizes, I, I'm eating pig food. And I want to eat pig food. And what gets him, what turns him and gets him back on the road home? Do you remember? He remembered that his father was absolutely accepting, and he remembered the bread. He said, how many of my father's servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. And when he got there, he found that the father was far more accepting of him than he even imagined in the pig pen. When you come to God, you're not going to find a wagging finger. You're going to find a feast. 
You're going to find mercy like warm bread and pardon like a glass of wine. And we struggle to believe this because we know that the scriptures teach that God is holy and righteous and hates sin. And that's absolutely true. He will not sweep your sins under the rug or smile and shrug them off. No, justice must be done and payment must be made. Which is why true repentance is also a call to rest in God's promises. Point three, rest in God's promises. In verse number three, God says this, Hear and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. What in the world does that mean? Well, it means this, that God's mercy for you is based on a covenant, on a solemn oath that God has bound himself to perform. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised King David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne and rule over a worldwide, righteous, eternal kingdom. That's why Israel was always looking for one of David's descendants to come. Because when he did and he retook the throne, it would mean the end of sin and the reign of God on earth. Psalm 89 is just one of the many places that picks up on this promise. And it says this, I have found God is speaking. He says this, I have found my servant David. With my holy oil I have anointed him. My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne is the days of heaven. Righteousness that will never end. Isaiah picked up on this promise in chapter 11, verse 1, and says that there will come a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's David's family, David's father, who would become the Lord's ultimate servant, David. But the servant would need to bear the penalty for his people's sins. That's the only way an eternal righteous kingdom could be offered for free to you and me. Isaiah says this, When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. That is what the angel means when he comes to Mary and, and says that God will give Jesus the throne of his father, David. That promise is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, the offspring and the root of David. We have spent a lifetime substituting other things for God. And in Jesus Christ, God came and substituted himself for you. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought the peace, our peace was upon him. Friends, from the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. He stood in your place. He became poor. He became thirsty. He came under the wrath of God. He came to the place where you were so you could be united with him by faith. And he could pull you out in his resurrection and give you all the pleasure and the joy and the satisfaction that comes from God's right hand. Jesus gives the living water. Jesus is the bread of life. His blood is the wine of the new covenant. All that you need and everything that satisfies is in him. Because he satisfied the wrath of God 
for you. Pastor Tim Keller often says that no created thing can satisfy your heart if you get it or will forgive your sins if you fail it. But Jesus can, and Jesus has. He is the one that you were made to worship and serve, to enjoy and glorify. He is the all-consuming satisfaction for your soul that you've chased your whole life. And he went to the cross to die for all of your ugly and petty attempts to satisfy your desires with something other than God. And the offer is free to you. The offer is free for all because the servant is the one who paid the price. Now, if you believe that, when you believe in your bones that you're vindicated by God, do you think you'll have any need to win that argument? If you're drinking deeply of the love of God in Christ, the things of this world, as the hymn says, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Real repentance means becoming poor and thirsty and hungry for righteousness and realizing that all that you need is in Christ and going to God and enjoying and delighting in him through Jesus Christ, the word. Some of you need to come to Christ in a conclusive way. You've spent your whole life dishonoring God, seeking your own pleasure, and you're thirsty. You know that your life is not satisfying. Come, forsake your evil thoughts and ways. The price is paid for you by Jesus, and Christ will take you today to the Father, to the source of all enjoyment and pleasure, and you can worship and glorify him forever. Some of you know God, you believe in Christ, you trust in him, but there's always that lingering idolatry. Let yourself be hungry. Fast from those things that you think you need and turn to God in his word. Friends, this season, make sure that you rest, that you rest your soul in God's unshakable covenant promises that you fast from all your idols, and then when you're good and hungry, come and feast on God in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who came, who bore the penalty for our sin on the cross, who rose from the dead, who sits at your right hand, where pleasures are forevermore, who return in glory and take us to be with him forever. Lord, teach us to look to him in your word, to be fed on, fed on him, to satisfy and delight ourselves in you through him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.